are the dead, he cried, whom you commemorate from those warrior hills. Streams have bled with battle we have marched from ruined towns and blasted pasturage, from barren trenches pitted with the steel of hideous hailstorms, rusted with the rain of careless blood. Now, despite those words from Sir Theodore Cook in his silver medal winning piece, the Olympic Games of Antwerp, the 1920 games were one which the IOC claimed today is still recognized for its lasting contributions to sport, gender equality, unity, and peace. Well, 100 years later, many people believe this is a symbol of post-crisis solidarity and recovery. Welcome to Antwerp 1920. For each and every podcast so far, we've relied heavily on the works of our guest today, an absolute hero for the early Olympic movement, I would say. And uh, he is the one and only Bill Mallon. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. I've really enjoyed uh, the first few podcasts you've done. They were really well done. Thank you very much. And of course, we have Ruth Fitzpatrick here as well. Ruth, how you doing? I'm here. <laughs> I've, I've, I've got through. <laughs> You're surviving just about. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know, we have uh, quoted Bill a couple of times already, but a bit of background on him. He's a former professional golfer, orthopedic surgeon, and really a leading authority on the history of the Olympic Games. So we're really thrilled to have him on the Olympic pod. And Bill, I want to ask you, first of all, where was the beginning of your love affair with the Olympic Games? How did it come about? Well, my father was a cyclist and a speed skater. And uh, my first sport before golf was cycling. I, I competed in cycling when I was very young. And then in 1964, um, I got interested in the Olympics when I spent a week in New Jersey. I'm from Massachusetts originally. I spent a week in New Jersey at my aunt and uncle's house. And I went over to the library in the town a couple days, uh, and they had all sorts of books on the Olympics, and I started reading about them, and I was very interested. And then later that fall, in October '64, the games were in Tokyo, like they're supposed to be next year, we hope. And um, uh, I started, I watched them voraciously on the U.S. television, although it was very few hours compared to today. And I started collecting records on the Olympics, and it it just kind of kept going. It even when I played golf, I would. Uh, I was playing professional golf. I would, I would go to bookstores when I had some free time uh, and look for old books on the Olympics and collect books on the Olympics. Now we've said that uh, we've often quoted you in these early Olympopods. We've also misquoted you for 1904, I believe. <laughs> Chris, was that you? <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember. What did I? What? What did we do again? I, I think. Ah, oh, I remember. Yes, yeah, I remember. I was basically saying that. Um, the rules determining what was an Olympic sport or not were, were thrown out the window by everyone, including Bill, which wasn't quite the case, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the reason you mentioned about early games was I wrote seven books. I, I've written more than that, but I wrote seven books back in the 90s on the first seven Olympics, 1896 to 1920. And um, uh, probably the best legacy of those uh, books is in the 1900 one, I proposed a set of sort of criteria by which we could consider which events were Olympic and which weren't. Because in 1900 and 1904, nobody really knew which events were Olympic and which weren't, which were not. Uh, when 
when you started looking back at the records. So uh, a lot of people have followed those, which I'm pretty happy about. So I, I guess I did something right. Yeah, we absolutely. followed them too. So yeah, <laughs> the, the fish, the official codes of the Olympopods. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think everyone agrees that you worked some absolute miracles to create those comprehensive uh, overviews of those early games because they really weren't uh, or nothing like that existed before uh, you got it done. So tell us about the the process of how you managed to collect them and the challenges you faced, because I imagine it was no easy task. It wasn't, but it was a lot of fun. You know, I you mentioned I'm an orthopedic surgeon, my day job, and people say, well, how do you do this? And I said, well, this keeps me sane, <laughs> and uh, this is what I really enjoy. Uh, and um, I started collecting statistics on the Olympics, as I said, back in 64, and then in the early 80s, when I was in med school, I got up with a guy named Eric Komper, uh, an Austrian who's really the foremost Olympic historian of the early days of the Olympics through about the 1980s. Eric died in 1992, I believe it was. And um, uh, Eric asked me to start looking up some things about the 1904 Olympics, and I did. And then I started you know, seeing that there weren't really good records of the games until about 1924. And so I started going to libraries and looking them up. My wife was a, at that time was an international flight attendant for TWA, which doesn't exist anymore. But um, I, on a trip with her to Paris, I went to the Bibliothèque Nationale and I looked at all sorts of magazines and newspapers for 1900. And for a couple of the games, I, you know, I had a couple of people help me because I, I needed some help. Like for 1908, uh, my great compatriot Ian Buchanan helped me with the 1908 games. And, you know, he went to the British Museum, the, the British National Library, and found all sorts of things. So we looked at pretty much original sources as much as we could. And we found, uh, you know, the complete results of uh, uh, most of the events, not quite all of them. There's still a few we're missing. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, – 1908, we were missing the complete results of only one event, the individual gymnastics competition. We we knew all the entrants, but we didn't know the results or where they finished. We actually found them about two months ago uh, in, an obscure, in an obscure French newspaper. Uh, <laughs> we've got the complete results of 1908 now for every event. Going to have to republish uh, 1908 then, huh? Well, it's on. Um, it's all on our website, uh, you know, olympedia.org. So. I do. So talking about having, you know, for some of the games having a well a lack of facts or lack of records. Um, our last Olympopod was for nineteen sixteen, and a few weeks ago, myself and Chris were doing a bit of research and watched a documentary on the nineteen twenty games, and there was a segment in it which talked about the Berlin War Games, which took place. I think it was the twenty. 4th or the 25th of June 1916 and after that we couldn't find any information about it uh, we, we saw we wasn't there was even when we looked up the exact date there was one picture on um, the documentary and there was a bit of film footage so we're not sure if uh, people have been just you know staging a massive hoax have you ever heard of the 1916 Berlin War Games I've never heard of them and that doesn't <laughs> That doesn't happen to me very often on the early Olympic Games, so uh, I'm not sure they existed. And, and I deal with I deal with Germans, you know, sports historians and Olympic historians all the time, and I've never heard them mentioned it to me either. You know, we know about the. Um, uh, you guys probably in getting ready for Antwerp. Uh, you guys probably looked up the Inter Allied Games in 1919. You know about them. Yeah. 
but I've never heard of anything in Berlin in 1916. They were mm. they were sort of preoccupied, uh, you know, doing war at that time. Yeah, the the 1919 Interallied basically took over that podcast because we realized we had to we had to shift focus uh, very quickly on uh, on that one. But so tell me, as we we switch our focus then to 1920, which is the the main aspect of this podcast, uh, can you give us a your impression of the uh, the mood uh, leading up to these 1920 games, it was organized on very short notice. It was given to Antwerp basically a sign of uh, recognizing what everyone in Belgium had gone through during the war. So what was it like then post-World War One and leading up to the games? I, I don't have any idea how they how they did it, to tell you the truth. I mean, Belgium was devastated in World War One, just as it was in World War Two. It's It's almost like we picked Belgium to contest our wars. It's the host nation for world wars, I guess. Uh, uh, now, Antwerp was not as badly devastated as some of the other areas of the country. Uh, so it wasn't the horror show that, you know, the, you know, the, the forests and the, the mild mountains in the eastern part of the country were but they only awarded the games to Antwerp in April of 1919. Uh, so they only had one year, uh, you know, because uh, ice hockey and figure skating were held in April. So they had one year to actually get started on this. Now we give them seven years. Uh, so it, it's just amazing to me they even held the, the Belgian organizers even pulled this off. That's yeah, absolutely incredible what they managed to do. And how we usually look at these podcasts is we take a couple of facts each and, and we present them our favorite stories our favorite moments of these games now i think this at least on my part in researching this this is probably the first games where there's just so much information floating around at this point that you really have to pick and choose so i think it's only fair that you being the, the prime expert and uh, our guest that you get first pick as to which kind of stories or athletes impressed or fascinated you most in your research. I think the most important thing about these games is uh, they, they sort of became somewhat modern because it was the first time the Olympic flag appeared at the Olympic Games. Um, De Coubertin had designed this in the early 1910s, and it had flown at uh, the Pan-Egyptian Games in 1914 in Alexandria and at the 1915 Pan American Exposition in San Francisco, but this was the first time the Olympic rings and the Olympic flag appeared at the Olympics, uh, which is a big thing. And, and also, it's the first time at the opening ceremony um, that an athlete took the oath of athletes. It was taken by a, a gentleman named Victor Bone, uh, B-O-I-N, who uh, was a, both a water polo player and a fencer and, and actually one of Belgium's great athletes and later a, a big sports journalist. So really, one of the first modern uh, Olympic games are starting to become more modern anyway, I think are the biggest things to me. And these games, we didn't have the Germans, the Austrians, the Hungarians and the Bulgarians, among others, because they were not invited, having been, uh, well, having lost World War One, some might say, but also being the aggressors in it. And uh, there were 29 nations that participated uh, nevertheless, including some new countries. We uh, we had Estonia, who, who took part, also Czechoslovakia, who had competed, well, I guess as Bohemia, in previous games. And we mentioned them in the Inter-Allied games as well, uh, due mostly to their, their strong football team. But uh, how about you, Ruth? Any, any particular events or athletes you want to focus on here early on? I do. 
But, you know, in previous Olympopods, I've been allowed to kind of just uh, ramble on for a bit. And uh, it doesn't matter if some of my facts are a little bit shaky. Uh, this, this, this is the first Olympopod where we have a fact checker on board. But that being said, uh, yeah, I, I will share some of my um, facts using that in a kind of looser term than perhaps we, uh, Bill would like. Um, you just mentioned Czechoslovakia and the football. Um, now, I'm not entirely convinced that football should be in the modern schedule. Not the 90 minute game anyway, like maybe like maybe a five aside. So I'll, I'll be fine with that or a street football. <laughs> sorry that. But the, the, uh, soccer as it is. I have my doubts um, and that's for many reasons. But anyway, we'll get to that later. Um, that being said, the football event really seems to have been a source of drama in the early Olympics and Antwerp 1920 proved no different. Uh, there were 14 nations in the draw, including for the first time Egypt. Poland were unable to send a team due to the ongoing Polish-Soviet war, which meant that the hosts, Belgium, got a bye straight into the quarterfinals where they met Spain, beating them 3-1. And then the Netherlands in the semi-final, which they won 3-0, setting themselves up for a showdown with Czechoslovakia in the finals. Czechoslovakia had been dominant throughout the tournament and they had been fairly confident about their chances. I mean, the Belgians were fairly confident about their chances too, but that's a different story. That was until they saw who would be officiating the match. It was John Lewis, an English referee in his 60s, who had already refereed an Olympic final match in 1908 between Great Britain and Denmark. He seems to have been highly regarded by the international supporting community and generally up to this point had been considered a fair ref. But Czechoslovakia felt that he might be slightly biased against them. And this is because in a pre-Olympic friendly he had officiated over in Prague, the home team lost and the fans, the hooligans, were not too pleased and physically attacked him. So there was a general feeling that maybe there would be some bad blood here. They tried in vain to have him replaced, but the IOC were having none of it. Now, I think there had been kind of issues with attendance at many events but that wasn't so for football. And on the day of the final, reportedly at least 40,000 spectators turned up for the event in the 35,000 capacity stadium. The organisers arranged for soldiers to guard the perimeters of the pitch, something the Czechoslovakians would later describe as provocative and menacing. And things didn't get much better from there. They conceded a penalty in the first 10 minutes and a second highly disputed goal for the home side followed soon after. They no doubt felt fairly dejected about this and uh, coming out after half time into this ocean of Belgians. And in the opening few minutes of the second half, their key player, Carl, Carl Steiner, was sent off by John Lewis for a vicious tackle. And as Steiner walked off the pitch, the rest of his team walked off with him. Nobody had any idea what had just happened. Certainly not the referee, the Belgian squad or the 40,000 Belgian supporters who were all left in a state of bewilderment until finally John Lewis took control, disqualified the Czechoslovakians and declared Belgium the winners of the gold medal. Although it ends there for the Czechoslovakians, there was still some drama left in the event. The bronze medal match, now the silver and bronze medal match between the Netherlands and France was cancelled after it turned out that much of the French squad had already left. So instead, a mini knockout tournament was organised between the remaining 
four quarterfinal losers, Italy, Norway, Spain and Sweden, to see who would face the Netherlands. And throughout the mini event, there was controversy over the poor British refereeing, with Sweden even threatening to withdraw in protest. This, combined with the debacle of the final, led later to an admittedly unsuccessful campaign to have Great Britain withdraw for the 1924 Paris Games due to unsportsmanly behaviour and not upholding the Olympic spirit. Now, Bill, was any of that true? <laughs> Actually, that was uh, almost 100% accurate, Ruth. I, <laughs> the, only, the only thing of interest, uh, you mentioned about, uh, you know, five-person football. Uh, at the Pan American Games, uh, they've actually had futsal. Um, they've had it at the Pan American Games, but I've never heard of them trying to get it into the Olympics. Yeah, I think that would be probably the the best call if they were going to bring in a, a smaller version, like we're seeing it with, uh, or we saw it already with rugby sevens in the Rio Olympics, and I think basketball three three on three is going to be in Tokyo. So yeah, maybe there is a a future for futsal there. But the red card, I think yeah, I really love the most from Carl Steiner because apparently he kicked the opposition player in the chest. I mean, it happens, Chris. <laughs> Kicking somebody in the chest is quite um, quite incredible. That reminds me a bit of uh, Eric Cantona and that uh, kung fu kick into the crowd, um, I think in the 90s uh, as a Manchester United player. We had that one in the uh, World Cup a few years ago when I, I forget who it was when he headbutted the other guy in the chest. Zinedine Zidane, yeah, yeah, and that was in the final <laughs> as well. So, uh, okay, yeah, maybe this is the the first first Zinedine Zidane moment uh, in uh, world class football. So, Ruth, was it because I read about the the British? Uh, then, like, there were calls for them to withdraw from the the following Olympics. That was from other nations. Then it wasn't yeah. from the Brit. Okay, uh-huh. <laughs> Jesus, yeah, that's, well, that's, uh, that's that's what I gathered. Yeah, other nations were like, no, no, no. Um, if this is what their referees are like, if you go back and read the British papers from about 1904 to about 1930, there were always calls for the British to withdraw from the Olympics. There were articles about that every year, all the time. Uh, for some reason. You know, the British back then had sort of started formal international amateur sport and they thought that they controlled it. And I, I don't think they liked the fact that they weren't in control at the Olympics. Sort of mm. like it's sort of like the U.S. doesn't like the fact that we're not in control at the Olympics now. <laughs> but uh, at least we're still going. It was a 20th century Brexit. Yeah. What about you, Chris? Sticking with the team sports, and I think this always deserves a mention in the Olympipod and particularly seeing as it's the last time that it appears but the tug of war makes its final appearance in 1920 and i i think this is particularly interesting and i want to ask bill about it as well because for a certain time after the the british won gold in the end but many people were led to believe that the usa had won silver in this case and i think it was your co-author bill uh, for the 1920 book that uh, did some research and figured out that it uh, was not the Americans who won in the end. It's really hard to figure out who won silver and bronze, and uh, it's still somewhat controversial. But uh, yeah, my, my author for the 1920 games was Tony Biker, who was a great uh, uh, Olympic historian, died just a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, he found out that it, uh, the U.S. did not win the silver. Um, but uh, 
I'd actually have to go look up who did win the silver. It was the Dutch. Tony was Dutch, so that he liked yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think some of them were still alive at the time uh, when he'd done his research, and they actually had the diplomas to, to prove that they had, uh, they had, in fact, won the silver. And interestingly enough, now that we can see the, the overview of the tournament, the USA, far from winning silver, they actually lost both of their matches they lost to the great british team in the quarterfinals of the main event and then lost to belgium in the semi-final of the silver medal event uh so in like the the repechage or the the bergval system and i want to ask you a bit about that because we mentioned it there in the football as well that due to the czechoslovakians uh being disqualified that there was a playoff then to see who would win silver and it would again be done for bronze and i think this was prevalent in the olympics uh, for a short while also in american college sport or in team events it wasn't just a case of the two teams in the final one of them would win gold one of them would win silver and then from the semi-finalists you would decide who'd win bronze but after the gold medal uh, was won which could be like halfway through an event they would continue playing on to figure out who'd won silver and bronze which to me seems like a massive anti-climax yeah it's a, it's called the Bergvall system, and it was named after a Swedish, um, which is good for you, Chris, since you're up in Sweden now, <laughs> uh, a Swedish uh, sports administrator named Eric Bergvall. And the way they usually did it was all the teams that lost to the gold medalists could then compete again uh, in a, a knockout tournament for the silver medal. And then all the teams got together that had lost to either the gold medalists or the silver medalists competed again uh, for the bronze medal. And actually, it is still done today at the Olympics um, a little bit um, in judo, uh, and I think taekwondo um, as well. The, um, uh, it's sort of a repechage, you know, as they do in rowing, again, where the, uh, the athletes in judo that lose to the um, uh, finalists, the gold and silver medalists, then compete in another knockout tournament for the bronze medals. Yeah, interesting stuff. It feels a bit unfair, though, overall, particularly in these team sport events back then, because, as I mentioned, you you could have a team going all the way to the final, then losing the final, and they would have to then compete against teams who might have only had one match right at the beginning of the championship. And, well, for them, it's a bit unfortunate they would have had to stay in the country instead of going home like the, I think you mentioned the uh, French did, Ruth. In the football, yeah. So, but but then the the French the French had form the French had form with uh, French, uh with with particularly in the football that you know if 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 they didn't win they was like nope. <laughs> now, Ruth, it, it doesn't surprise me that Chris brought up the tug of war. If I've heard the other podcasts you guys have done, I mean, Chris loves the tug of war, as I recall. Well, it's me. It's me who oh, loves Ruth, the tug of war. Ruth's the big fan. <laughs> you, I'm Ruth's sorry. The big yeah. fan. <laughs> and, and actually, it's a great sport. Uh, Back maybe 20, 30 years ago in the U.S., uh, before the, uh, the um, all-star game uh, in football, American football, they used to have the NFL players. It, it's always held in Hawaii, and they'd get on the beach, and they'd have a tug-of-war against each other. And this was like the most watched thing on television. It was a great competition. So there's some push to have tug-of-war in the Olympics. Uh, I, I think it would be a great event to watch. I'd love to see it. Love to see it. Why did everyone think America had won? Was it like, did they just go home and say that they had got silver? Like, why 
For, why did we for 70 years? It was reported in uh, some of the old books that they were listed that way, and uh, we had to correct that. Okay. Actually, I do have a question for you. This isn't a fact, but it's just um, with the gymnastics, because with the last few Olympopods, we've mentioned the gymnastics. Um, there were four events in the gymnastics in 1920. The all-around individual, all-around team, free system team and Swedish system team. Italy's Giorgio Zampori won the individual event as well as getting gold in the all-around team with Italy. Denmark won the free systems team. And Chris, here's the question for you. Do you want to take a guess at who won the Swedish systems team event? Uh, I would guess it was Norway. <laughs> Not Sweden. It was Sweden. It was Sweden. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned this in the 1912 uh, Olympopod that, yeah, that it's not really that surprising because Sweden takes all of the medals in the sports that they invent. Are you seeing a lot of Swedish medalists here in these early Olympics? And they kept popping up in this one as well. And for a country of a similar size to Ireland, um, particularly in the early years where Ireland's medals went to Great Britain or the USA because there was a lot of Irish-American uh, athletes, uh, similar to yourself, Bill. So it's uh, it's pretty unfair looking at the uh, historical medal tables at the moment, seeing Sweden with their hundreds of medals in Ireland with about 15. They were all, they were all men competing at the gymnastics, but uh, in previous years, we did have lady demonstrations. Bill, do you know if there were any ladies uh, making a bit of a demonstration at the gymnastics in 1920? Yeah, I didn't look this up before I uh, read this, but as I recall, there was a, a demonstration, a uh, female, um, female gymnast in 1920. Uh have you looked that up already? No, no, I haven't. No, no, no. It was, it's just it's just occurred to me. Uh, I'm sure Cooper Tan wouldn't have liked it, but like... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cooper Tan was not a big fan of uh, women in the Olympics, that's for sure. No, which I think which I think um, in the last Olympopod we said was maybe why he loved the Inter-Allied Games so much, because there were no women. <laughs> uh, the Inter-Allied Games had the uh, great event of uh, hand grenade throwing. So. Well, actually, I mean, it is a bit of a throwback to another Olympopod, but we were talking about that. Do you have any facts about that? Because like, I, I, wanted, I wanted the grenades to be on, or is it just like that you're just throwing? <laughs> no, I think they were uh, definitely not on route. <laughs> just added a bit of excitement ending the games with a literal bang (laughs) (laughs) talking about the ladies um atelda blybtree won gold for team usa in all of the women's swimming events the 100 meter and 300 meter freestyle as well as the four by 100 meter freestyle she had only taken up swimming three years previously when she was recovering from polio then in 1919, the year before Antwerp, she was arrested for nude swimming at a public venue. Um, a bit of digging shows that this wasn't quite as scandalous, at least by today's standards, than would initially suggest. What she had done was swim without her stockings, and in doing so, she bared the lower female extremities. One can only imagine uh, that this scandalised observers, like with our sexy Danish gymnasts of uh, Olympopods past, her arrest and subsequent fining caused public uproar, which eventually led to the decriminalisation of lower female extremities, which 
I'm a big fan of since I also possess lower female extremities. So, so thank you, Ethelda. <laughs> yeah, Ethelda Blybetree is not known at all today, but um, she won three gold medals, uh, the 100 meters, the 300 meters, and the relay for uh, U.S. in uh, swimming, and really was the first uh, U.S. Uh, female superstar swimmer. Uh, there were many to come after her, but uh, she was kind of the pioneer for us. At the time, with this uh, this whole stockings thing, I think that was also when they were competing that the female swimmers in the U.S. had to wear their stockings while in the water. Yeah, um, you, you see old pictures of them, the way they had to compete, and you, you just wonder how they could, uh, uh, I mean, they had to be lo- you know, bogged down by the weight of this uh, mm-hmm. outfit they wore because they it wasn't just a swimsuit half the time. Half the time it was like a skirt around the swimsuit as well that, uh, you know, soaked up the water. Uh, it's certainly nothing like today's, uh, you know, the uh, polyester swimsuits that they, especially that they wore back around 19, 2010 that they eventually banned. But uh, uh, it's amazing what they made women do back then uh, in the 20s uh, in terms of sports. Uh, you know, what we referred to was, uh, you know, Coubertin, the founder of the modern Olympics, uh, was pretty much completely opposed to women competing in the Olympic Games. Uh, uh, he was uh, sort of overruled just to get them in. But that's the main reason why very few women events or sports before World War II. Uh, well, at this at these games, we I think we had 65 women. It's not a huge amount uh, this time around. Was there anyone else that came to your mind when you were looking through the, the female athletes? Suzanne Lenglen was a, a big one for me, the tennis player. And I think we spoke about her while not recording once, Ruth. Yeah, she, she featured uh, extensively in the 1920s documentary we watched. Yes, now we know yes, it yes. was a documentary full of lies, but at the time we enjoyed it immensely. She was a bit of, su- of a superstar at the time. I think she revolutionized women's tennis as well. At those uh, Antwerp games, she won the... Uh, the gold in the singles and I think in the women's or the mixed doubles as well um, for France. And she was a multiple Wimbledon champion as well. Literally one of the best of the, the post-World War One era. And I remember when we were watching this documentary that there was a, they said a misunderstanding or a scandal uh, that ended up seeing her uh basically uh, retire or be forced out of amateur tennis, right? Was it not just that she went professional and people thought that this was... That was basically it, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, like the documentary made a big song and dance about like she had a massive like controversy. I think like basically she, she, did she go to the doctors or something and didn't tell Wimbledon? And so she was slightly late for a match. Yeah. She she told she told her she told her doubles partner to tell the umpire that she was going to be late because she had to go to the doctor or something. From what I recall, I I certainly I certainly haven't been looking up no. these facts before this Olympiad. So yeah, do do quote me, but it may be wrong. <laughs> but that uh, that misunderstanding or scandal, as some people might might have called it at the time, then yeah, forced her to um, make a decision, and in the end, she decided to go professional, and I think got a fairly uh, lucrative deal as well she signed a five-month tour around the u.s uh playing exhibition matches and she was uh, a real superstar so i think fair play to her for also uh embracing her opportunity to earn and and make uh decent money out of her well i was going to say god-given talent seeing as her nickname was the goddess 
but she uh, she was an incredible athlete and uh, a real uh, hero for women's tennis and women's sport in these uh, early post World War One times. And the second course in Paris is named after, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. which I'm, I have in the TV in the background right now. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we have the very uh, the wet Roland Garros at the moment. A lot of players complaining about that, huh? You know, most people think uh, she was probably the greatest uh, female tennis player before World War II, certainly, and for for a long time they considered her the greatest. As she she lost very few matches in her career, um, not just in one year, but I mean, she lost something like six matches in her entire career. And wasn't the prince of uh... Belgium very taken with her when he gave her her special uh, <laughs> awards. <laughs> Again, this is 100% just from the documentary, which, as we said, we now know is full of lies. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really familiar with that one. The, the other great <laughs> athlete that, you know, appeared in Antwerp for the first time at the Olympics uh, is the man many people consider the greatest distance runner uh, uh before World War II, certainly, and for a long time, many people said he was the greatest distance runner ever, and that's Pavo Nermi, the flying Finn. Mm. And, uh, you know, he ran at Antwerp for the first time and uh, won three gold medals there and a silver medal in the 5K. And uh, he kept coming back in 24 and 28 uh, and ended up winning nine gold medals and 12 medals in 12 races that he ran. So he never he never finished off the podium in any of his Olympic events. Phenomenal, right? And I think his the beginning of his uh, Olympic career wasn't perfect, though. I think that was one of the few defeats. He finished in second place, as you mentioned, in the, the 5,000 meters behind the very interesting Joseph Guillemot from France, who, and he had his, his heart on the right-hand side of his body. He had a collapsed lung. Uh, due to mustard gas and he was also a, a fairly heavy smoker as well so he was quite a, quite a character but he ended up winning the 5k if your listeners of the podcast want to know the the correct medical term for having the heart on the wrong side mm. it's called situs inversus there'll be a pop quiz on this after this uh, podcast. <laughs> well i do love the idea of uh, of joseph guillermo and and yeah he i think uh, it was basically like a two-way battle between the two of them for all of Pavo Nermi's three medals at, or three individual medals at these games, right? Because although Guillermo won the gold in the 5K in the, the 10 kilometer race uh, a few days later, a bit of a schedule change left him, I was going to say short, but left him very full. Uh, yeah, he was um, second to Nermi in the 10K. Um, um, he'd won relatively easy, easily rather, in the. Um, 5k over Nermi, but uh, lost by a few seconds in the 10k. Um, and, uh, you know, the, as you mentioned, the most amazing thing about him, not so much his heart, because actually that that is not a problem. Uh, it's just an unusual thing. But, um, you know, he was gassed during World War One with mustard gas, uh, which damaged his lungs, and yet he could still be a distance runner. That's uh, fairly incredible. And a smoker on top of that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. That's a new one. On yeah. Apparently, it was, a, it was a pack a day uh, kind of guy, at least according to uh, Jeff Tibbles and his uh, his book. I don't know if how much you uh, don't know. If, I don't know what it's like with the Olympic historians. If there's any beef between you guys, but, <laughs> or you all appreciate and love each well, actually, other. Actually, there there are a few things we argue about. Uh, yeah, but um, you know, for the most part, we 
For the most part, we agree. There's a few things here and there. <laughs> well, this is the only podcast so far on, on one of the actual Olympic Games in which I tried on purpose to do research outside of yours because, well, why why read what you wrote when you have the man himself here on the podcast? So I'm uh, feeding some other, or feeding myself with some other uh, sources on this occasion. But I think yeah, it was in Jeff Tibble's uh, book, the the Olympic Strangest Moments, spoke about uh, Joseph Gimo and the 10k, where the original race time for the 10 kilometer final was pushed back about two and a half hours because the king wanted to go to i think it was an arts exhibition and uh decided he the race should be at 2 30 instead guillermo had just had a large lunch and apparently his shoes were stolen beforehand as well and so despite all of that uh he managed to finish a close second and then ended up puking on uh nurmi's shoes shortly after the race <laughs> well, i'm learning something here i didn't know about that. <laughs> to be honest it just sounds like uh marathon from 1900 or 1904 like <laughs> this doesn't sound like anything new <laughs> yeah well this is yeah this is um yeah funnily enough uh, all the drama seems to be in the other athletics events this time and not so much uh, or at least not so much crimes to humanity in the marathon this time around but uh, yeah, we also had Pavel Nurmi getting a gold in the eight-kilometer cross-country, both individual and team there. And Joseph Guillermo, I think, twisted his ankle in in that race. At from one incredible fin to another one, uh, Hannes Kolomainen, who was I think in 1912 the five-kilometer and ten-kilometer champion, he moved up to the marathon for this one. Yeah, he came back uh, in 1920 and. Uh won the marathon um, in what was probably a world record. But actually, you know, the, back then there wasn't a set distance for the marathons. And the marathon at Antwerp was actually longer than what we run today, where it's 26.2 miles or 42.195 kilometers. Um, back then it was 26 and three quarters miles uh, at Antwerp. Um, but Cole Minen's time still was better than the fastest time on record for the marathon. And he, he's uh, really only second to Nermi in kind of the Finnish pantheon of sporting heroes. Uh, actually, in 1952, when the Olympics were at Helsinki, um, one of the most emotional moments ever in an Olympic ceremony was Pavo Nermi brought the torch into the stadium, uh, the Olympic torch. Um, but he did not light the flame. He actually handed the torch to Kolomainen, who uh, ascended the steps and lit the torch at the 1952 opening ceremony. So interesting that they picked Kolomainen for the final uh, torchbearer there. I guess Kolomainen, he kind of kick-started it all for the the Finnish distance runners at that time. Yeah, he did. They were the the greatest distance runners in the world, really, uh, through through the 1970s with Lassie Viren. Uh, But... uh, haven't been done haven't done much since then the the africans of course have uh, sort of taken over distance running but even despite that the Finns have fallen well away there really aren't any great finnish distance runners uh for the last 20 years or so they're they're, they're pretty good though at the biathlon are they (laughs) winter olympics oh they're very good at the biathlon yeah (laughs) they're also in ski jumping i mean ski jumping is almost their national sport uh you know, there, there are two big things uh, or, or three big things, really, with ski jumping, uh, distance running and javelin throwing. 
and they're still good at javelin throwing. Yeah, that's true. I want to stick with athletics for just a bit more and go to the sprints because we had mentioned in the the previous podcast uh, where we focused on the inter-allied games about uh, Charlie Paddock. Now, I think we mentioned him really just in passing as he was uh, a World War I uh, lieutenant. And uh, I think just afterwards, he started studying in uh, the University of Southern California. He joined the track and field team while he was there. And people might consider, or at least at the time, he was considered to be the, the fastest man alive and one of the first people to be given that tag as well. And despite just turning 20 days before the Antwerp Olympics, it really took it by storm. Yeah, he won both the 100 and 200 meters there in um, Antwerp. He was considered the fastest man alive. He was also kind of a, you know, a showboat. He used to finish with this jump finish where he'd jump in the air and spread his arms out, which he said was a, a way to win at the tape. It's been since been shown that that's not only a way to win at the tape, it's, uh, it slows you down. You shouldn't do it. Uh, but he, he, he did that. He came back in 24. If you, if you look at the movie chariots of fire, mm. when Harold Abrahams won the hundred and Eric Liddell, uh, won the 400, um, uh, Paddock competed in those games, but he was not nearly as successful. He, uh, um, finished fifth in the hundred, I think, and won a silver medal in the uh, 200. And actually I misspoke. He also won a silver medal in the 200 in 1920, not a gold medal. Ah, yeah. But yeah, he was considered the fastest runner uh, in the world at that time. He was unfortunately killed in World War II uh, in a, a plane crash uh, on a military plane. So he served in both World War One and World War II. Oh, it's incredible to, to think that, uh, that in between that became... Uh, such a renowned sprinter and it's it seemed seeing as he won gold in 1920 at the age of 20 he peaked very early in that regard but funnily enough in that in the movie the in the chariots of fire he's uh showcased as a bit of an asshole i don't don't know if he is if he's as bad as uh he was portrayed in the film yeah he was he was played by dennis christopher as i recall uh in the movie um and Jackson Schultz was the American who was kind of treated well, uh, who ended up winning the silver medal in the 100 meters and mm-hmm. the gold medal in the 200 at uh, Paris in 1924. Um, I, I don't I don't know if uh, Paddock was really uh, kind of a jerk like he was portrayed mm-hmm. in that movie or not. Uh, obviously, I didn't know him. I'm, I'm yeah. very old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> there was one athlete who I think... Uh, at least from from reading a couple of accounts who who seemed to be the bigger jerk of the American bunch. And that was Lauren Murchison, who was like a self-styled golden boy of U.S. sprinting at the time. And he apparently for the entire day of the race kept telling everyone, I'm going to win, I'm going to win, I'm going to win. Unfortunately for him, he didn't have a great grasp of the French language. And as they were setting up at the blocks, for the 100 meter final paddock had his hands just in front of the line as part of his i guess his his preparation uh, to go and he was told to to move his hands by one of the officials in french and then as they said to to get set murchison believed that it was a uh, an order to basically get up and they were going to reset themselves afterwards and as he was apparently relaxing and and just getting up he was caught off guard by the start and finish last. Now, I'm not 100% sure about how accurate this is because there is a video 
of the race itself. And of course, the 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 camera is from well 1920, and it is uh, it is at the finish line, so it's very difficult to to see what how it looks at the starting blocks. But it didn't look like he'd he. He wasn't exactly standing and walking around as the gun went. I, I wasn't really aware of that story either, so I don't know if that's true or not. It certainly could be. <laughs> you know, the tragic thing about Murchison, uh, whatever else you think about him, was a year later he developed spinal meningitis and he was paralyzed uh, the rest of his life from the waist down. So he never he never walked again uh, one year after those Olympics that he won, uh, you know, did fairly well. He won a gold medal in the relay. Um, he lived almost 50 years, but, uh, in a wheelchair. So sad story. That is. Yeah. Okay. That, that I did not, uh, so, you know, I did not, uh, read about that either. So that is, uh, it's fascinating Chris, to see the difference. I can't believe you called him like the asshole of the week. <laughs> like you gave us, and you gave, and you gave us, you gave us nothing to back that up. <laughs> like, you know. For the politically correct term, we, we ter- prefer to call it anally challenged. <laughs> I will quote my source here, and that's Jeff Tibbles again. So, uh, Jeff, you know, we're coming at you. I feel like Jeff Tibbles tells us a lot of things that sometimes I read um, slightly contrary reports. I think think he's a storyteller. Yeah, I mean, that's that's okay. That's that is okay. okay. Oh, yeah, no, no, I feel feel a great affinity to him. (laughs) 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 But, you know, I, I think, like, the listeners should probably would be better off quoting um, Bill or yourself than me. So like, I, I, I suppose I, I see his game because I am familiar with it. <laughs> <laughs> but an interesting thing that you mentioned is that, you know, there was footage of that race because this was one of the first uh, games where we actually have quite a lot of footage of a lot of events. It's good start of, it's, it's, it, although of course it wasn't televised because didn't really exist at that time, um, that there is like quite a lot of film footage. The Olympics now, every Olympic Games, they publish a, an official Olympic film of the Games. In the U.S., uh, for about, uh, starting about 1984, they were published by a great filmmaker named Bud Greenspan, who's done so many films on the Olympics. And he was actually invited to do the official film, not only for Los Angeles, and Atlanta, but uh, some of the other European nations and other cities invited him to do the official films as well. These official films go back, I think, to 1924. I think that's when there was the first official one. But about uh, two years ago, uh, I assume the IOC published this. I I don't really know the source. They actually uh, uh, sold um, a box set of all the official Olympic films. And also, uh, the CDs have the films of the games from 1896 to 1920 with whatever is available. Wow. And a lot of the filmmakers like Bud Greenspan had sort of tracked down old films from 1896 to 1920. And my wife actually got me that box set as a Christmas present, uh, which was a great Christmas present for me that yeah. year. Uh, but interesting story about that. You, you guys, I'm certainly know, know about David Wallachinsky, uh, you know, who wrote book of the Olympics and is a very close friend of mine and a, a great Olympic historian. David not only got the box set, he watched the entire box set. <laughs> it was something like 140 hours of watching the official thing and I'm like, that's too much for me, David. I've got it. I was going to ask, was was your entire week between Christmas and New Year's then just uh, sat in front of the TV watching the box set? 
Actually, I haven't really watched that much of it, to tell you the truth. Uh, I'll take David's word for it. (laughs) (laughs) If we're going to talk about Olympic films, I have to tell you my favorite Bud Greenspan story, if you want to hear it. Yes, of course we do. In, in 1984, the Olympic trials were in Los Angeles, and I was in there. I was working for the media. I was in the um, media center. And in the decathlon, uh, there was a, a runner from Campbell College uh, who was not going to qualify for the team, but he hurt his hamstring very badly uh, in the javelin or one of the events. And he started the 1,500 meters, and now it's dark in Los Angeles. There's only a couple thousand people left in the stadium, and he's limping around the track. He, he ended up finishing in like nine minutes. He was about three laps behind everyone else, and he took forever. And I, I thought it was great. Everyone's cheering the guy. They're you know applauding, and he finished. So I ran down to the, to the uh, broadcast booth where the broadcaster was a guy named Frank Zarnowski, who's the world's decathlon expert and does most of the decathlon announcing like at the world championship. And I said, Frank, Frank, this is exactly from Bud Greenspan's uh, film on the Olympics. He said, he says, he exemplifies the ancient Olympics saying, never ask for victory, ask only for courage. For if you endure the struggle, you bring honor to yourself. But more importantly, you bring honor to us all. So Zarnowski thinks this is great. He writes it down. He says it over the loudspeaker. Everyone's cheering this guy. The next day in the Los Angeles Times, they have a story about him. And they quote the Bud Greenspan quote that I gave Zarnowski in the Los Angeles Times. So, you know, it's great. It's wonderful. About three days later, I'm in the media center. And Bud Greenspan shows up there. And I, I know Bud. So I tell him the story. And I'm like, by the way, Bud, I said, what was the ancient Greek who said that? Who said that? And he goes, oh, that? He says, I made that up. <laughs> <laughs> That's something we really support on the Olympopod. <laughs> A wise man once said, and that wise man was me. That may be where those Jeff Dibble stories came from too, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and the famous 1916 Berlin War Games. <laughs> Bill, tell me what you remember of horse vaulting. Well, horse vaulting, (laughs) I've never seen a video, so I really don't know how it was done, but it was an event in Antwerp in equestrian. um, And basically it sounded like sort of acrobatics on horseback because I found the original rules, which were in Flemish, and I got them translated um, when I wrote the book. But you had to as you were as the horse was going around the ring you had to jump on the horse jump off you had to do it in different directions in different ways and uh there was an individual event for horse vaulting and a team event and uh it's the only time it's ever been contested at the olympics and i think maybe it's the only time it's ever been contested anywhere in the world at any sporting event well we have seen video footage of it uh myself and chris yes we have in this infamous documentary um and yeah there's there seemed to be uh, occasionally there's four or five horses together that you need to vault over. Quite impressive. <laughs> Why? I, I mean, it's like, um, so it, it is very much based on the gymnastics aspect of, of sport, right? But instead of using stationary things, you use a horse or multiple horses. And I mean, some of the rules that, um, like I saw you, those you had translated, Bill and, in some cases, you have to end up like standing, like jumping on the horse, but not like just landing and sitting on it, but landing and standing on it, jumping over its head, 
uh, multiple times, jumping over multiple horses. Uh, it's um, it's incredible. Yeah, and I mean, this could never happen today. I mean, PETA and the animal rights activists would never. The, the main thing we need to ask, I mean, how did the horses feel about this? <laughs> that was going to be my question, yeah. <laughs> up and landing on it's like hey lighten up buddy <laughs> you know you're not exactly a lightweight when you're landing on me like that exactly like i mean the horses seemed fairly placid in the sh- short 20 second um bit that we saw but if those were just jumping over the horses like body way <laughs> i don't know about jumping over their heads or landing on top of them in different positions yeah um, I imagine I imagine a couple of horses moved. Yeah, I'm sure they did. <laughs> I did a bit of Googling to see what modern day horse vaulting looks like. And you can see some videos on YouTube of of it. And there was one I found in particular, I think it was of a Swiss group of uh, female gymnastics in this case. And they were dressed as you would expect from gymnasts. Uh, there was maybe four of them or four or five of them uh, doing it together. And one horse who was being brought around in a circle the entire time. And the incredible thing for me is that uh, not only was the horse at a canter, but the gymnasts were running around <laughs> at a canter. So they were, they were acting like horses. And then, and then intermittently doing incredible gymnastic feats, but managing to get on top of the horse uh, to maybe two or three at a time and doing uh, gymnastic moves while the horse is being brought around uh, very calmly at a canter. But this gets to the, the thing you, you guys ask at the end of each one of these podcasts about which, which sports would you eliminate? I think we should eliminate horse vaulting from future Olympics <laughs> in case they're the bringing it back. Yeah, you, you also want to erase us from 1920. <laughs> Better than live pigeon shooting anyway. True, true. Yeah. I like that idea of a preemptive ban on on horse <laughs> vaulting ever being brought in. But yeah, definitely one of the most bizarre. And that says something as well uh, when you're calling a sport bizarre in these early games. Okay, if I had to choose one more to talk about, it has to be John B. Kelly. Uh, oh, yeah? An Irish-American... Uh, a rower and uh, he was one of the most accomplished American competitors in the history of rowing a uh, very gifted athlete not just in the sport of rowing but also in American football and basketball and also when while he was in the army he uh, took up boxing as well and as a heavyweight and uh, I think he had a 12-0 and record in uh, some kind of event before he had to drop out with a a broken ankle. In 1919, he played professional American football for a year, and he was also a bricklayer. And so he uh, was, uh, I think, fairly well-off bricklayer. He managed to be quite a success there. And just on a bit of a side note before we get into the rowing, I read on Wikipedia that he developed a technique to ensure payment for his brickwork from the real estate developers that he wasn't so sure about whether they'd pay or not. And so his uh, bricklaying crews would mortar a single pane of glass into each and every chimney they built. And so when new homeowners would complain about uh, smoke backing into their houses from the fireplace, the developers would then go to Kelly and complain. He'd reply, I'll take care of it when your check clears. 
And so once they got once they got paid, he would send his crew to drop a brick down the chimney and destroy the pane of glass and solving the problem. So he was uh, he was quite a man, and uh, he was uh, an incredible single skull rower. Due to his bricklaying professionalism, so to speak, he was apparently uh, refused uh, entry to the Henley Regatta that year in the UK, but he managed to go on and uh, win uh, the Olympics nevertheless. I think he uh, won two medals within uh, half an hour. So he won the singles, a singles goals final, and then half an hour later, he teamed up with his cousin, Paul Costello, to win the double skulls race, which, uh, as you can imagine, ha- has not been repeated since then. And, uh, well, before I-, I go on, is there anything there you would like to add on the sporting achievements or anything I've gotten horrendously wrong there, Bill? No, you got you got it pretty much correct. But in terms of the bricklaying, I don't think he laid a lot of bricks himself. I think he ran the company that laid the bricks because he became <laughs> very wealthy. Uh, you know, he's got... Uh, you know, if you go to Ancestry.com and want to look up his family tree, it's an amazing family tree because his um, uh, son, Jack Kelly Jr., uh, was also a great rower and uh, later became president of the U.S. Olympic Committee. Uh, he won a bronze medal in the single skulls. Uh, he never won a gold, um, but he did win the Henley Regatta. And um, uh, his daughter, uh, Jack Kelly Sr.'s daughter, Grace Kelly, became a great American actress in the 1950s, mm-hmm. uh, was sort of a, a superstar. Uh, again, I was born in the 50s, but I don't remember her at all from that. But uh, but she became best known because uh, she married uh, Prince Rainier of Monaco, and mm-hmm. she became a princess, Princess Grace, uh, who died uh, tragically in a car accident, um, I think with one of her daughters. Is that correct? Uh, I believe it was in the I, car I think too. her daughter, yeah, her daughter was in the car too, but I think she survived. Okay, yeah, in the, I think that was in the 90s that that happened. Um, so, but but her son, uh, her Prince Rainier and Grace Kelly's son is Prince Albert of Monaco, who uh, is now kind of the ruler of Monaco. So that would be... Um, um, Jack Kelly's grandson, uh, Prince Rainier, who, and then if you want to follow the Olympic lion even further, Prince Rainier married a, a South African swimmer named Charlene Whitstock, who competed in the Olympics, I think in 92, uh, as a South African swimmer. Uh, and she's now Princess Charlene of Monaco. So uh, she would be something like the granddaughter-in-law of Jack Kelly Sr. So yeah. His uh, his reach through the Olympics uh, is quite long. Uh, yes. You know, and he also, as you said, he competed with his uh, cousin in the double skulls, Paul Costello. In the 1950s, Paul Jack Kelly Jr. competed with Bernard Costello. And, uh, you know, you, you, you immediately put together, oh, these guys are related. Well, they're not. <laughs> um, and the way I found that out was I met Jack Kelly Jr., at in Philadelphia, which is right where I met him is actually right. If you remember the original Rocky movie, it's where Rocky runs up the steps of the stadium. And uh, I met Jack Kelly very near there at Boathouse Row, it's called. And uh, I mentioned to him about Bernard Costello being, you know, what was he, the son of Paul Costello? And he said, no, it's the same name, but they're not related at all. So uh. I was corrected <laughs> on that one. So that's one that didn't, didn't make it. But Jack Kelly Sr. 
an amazing athlete who had an amazing connection to the Olympics. You mentioned Prince Albert the second there, son of Grace Kelly. He himself is an Olympic athlete, competed in five consecutive Winter Olympics in the bobsleigh. And I think what his best finish was 25th, I think, in the 1988 Games in Calgary. And I was just thinking if I were a prince, I and you could choose any sport to just like take up and represent your country, I would do exactly that as well. I'm not sure it'd be the bobsleigh, but I would definitely find a sport that I'd represent my country in and finish like in the uh, 20, 20 to 40 position in each Olympics. Which I'm sure is also quite an achievement. But yeah, I wonder who's bankrolling that team. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he is, um, I mean, Prince Albert II, he is uh, considered. He's also yeah, been a absolutely. member of the International Olympic Committee. Uh, since 1985, actually. Yeah. So it's it's wonderful to to think that all that traces back to John B. Kelly and uh, his exploits at the 1920 Olympics. So that's a that's a really cool story, I find. No, I sorry. I just I just want to pick up though. You said that he played professional football. Yeah. Have we not seen people stripped of their Olympic medals? Oh, we sure now? have. Yes. For playing. I, I think he didn't play in the NFL, I don't think. I don't think he was quite that high up, so they probably didn't. No. Also, it's controversial whether or not Jack Kelly was banned from Henley because he was considered a professional for bricklaying um, because you couldn't, you, couldn't be a, you couldn't do a physical job back then. You had to be a gentleman amateur. Mm. Which you had to be rich. And uh, but what happened was Vesper Boat Club had been banned, which was Kelly's club, right. had been banned years before. So they weren't allowing anyone from Vesper to compete at Henley for a few years. So that's why Kelly never won the Henley any anything at the Henley Regatta, although he or Henley Royal Regatta, although he was definitely the best uh, scholar in the world for a few years. Yeah, it's, it's it's crazy to think also because I find that in. The 1920s, we see this, uh, begin to see a lot of uh, social change as well, and the uh, and classes in sport um, shifting, uh, and basically seeing that different uh, different groups of people in society begin to have, play a larger role in not just Olympic sport but also in, in sport all around the the world. But even then, there was still this uh, this snobbish behavior. And you mentioned, yeah, even though he played only one year of, uh, we say professional football, not in the NFL. He, uh, still, well, Ruth, you were, you were making reference to one of our previous heroes, huh? Yes. Yeah. Jim Thorpe, our, our hero of previous games that we are now, that we are now campaigning to be reinstated. He's actually sort of the founder of the NFL, the national football league, uh, which is American football, um, and was considered the greatest football player really through the 1920s or so. Uh, yeah. Just an, an unbelievable athlete. Any other athletes you want to bring up? There's three guys that, you know, sort of dominated the medal tables in uh, Antwerp. In, in fencing, Nito Nadi won five gold medals. Uh, Italian fencer, um, he won, you know, there's six... Uh, uh, fencing events and um, Nadi uh, had competed in the 1912 Olympics uh, and in, in Antwerp he competed in everything except the individual epe. He competed in foil in both individual and team and saber in both individual and team. He won a gold medal in everything. Uh, so, you know, pretty amazing uh, feat. Um, and also in shooting, 
now this is kind of artificial. You talk about, you know, today's uh, program in the Olympics and shooting has nine events, uh, which starting in, in uh, Tokyo, it's going to be three events for men, three events for women and three mixed events. Um, until recently, it's usually been six events for men and three for women. Uh, in 1920, there were 20 events. Uh, so you could win an enormous number of medals because not only did they have the regular events that they have now, but usually they had a team event in every competition. So, you know, you might shoot free, free rifle or free pistol, but then you take the scores from all the players from the U S team and the Belgian team, add them up. And, you know, you got an extra medal that way, basically. And that enabled two U S shooters, Willis Lee and Lloyd Spooner, to win seven medals in shooting in 1920, which is uh, an absolute record for Olympic shooting that will never be approached. And, and Willis Lee won five gold medals as well. So he and Nadi were the biggest, uh, took home the biggest haul of medals at those games. And Oscar Swan won. Did he win a gold in 1920 or was it just a silver, silver, silver? Yeah. Yeah. A lot H. I think he was 68 in 1920. Didn't he? Didn't he come? 72 was his, uh, I think uh, 1920 was the last one, yeah. Yeah, I thought mm. he competed in 24. Yeah, he's the oldest Olympic uh, athlete to ever have competed. And yeah. he, he also won a medal. He, he won a silver medal in the running target double shot team. I had to look, <laughs> I had to look that one up, guys. <laughs> I think his son was on that team as well. Alfred yeah. Swan. And Alfred won two silvers and a bronze that uh, year as well. So the the Swans were killing it in the in the shooting. But no, they weren't nice. killing it. They, it. No, they it weren't. Was, kill- it was yeah, there were no no live deers. No live yeah. deers. It's, it's not 1900, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> so, Bill, uh, you're familiar. You've mentioned it before. We every Olympopod, we like to. Uh, I suppose, alienate one section of the supporting community by taking them out of the Olympic schedule and uh, bringing another uh, another sporting community into the listenership and bring it into the Olympic schedule. So have you had have you had chance to think about it? Who would you what what is not deserving? So I would kick out boxing. And uh, the reason I would is uh, I'm a physician. And to me, the purpose of boxing is to, uh, uh, to create a traumatic brain injury and disable your opponent. And I don't like it. Uh, I think it's a barbaric sport that uh, we've evolved beyond that. So I would kick out boxing. And, you know, when they added women uh, boxing to the Olympics, Ruth, uh, you know, my comment on that was like, yeah, if women want to have the same right to have their brains beat into mush as men. Let them do it. But uh, I think it should both. I think it should be banned for both of them. Uh, and replacing it is an easy answer for me. And I doubt anyone has replaced it with this sport yet. I would replace it with sepik takraw. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I, I could. Yeah, nobody has mentioned that yet. It is an amazing sport. It's uh, only uh, really competed in to any degree in Southeast Asia, uh, Burma and Indonesia, and I think the Philippines too. It's basically three-man teams or three-person teams played over a badminton net, and it's basically volleyball with your feet, with a, uh, with a ball that's uh, smaller than a volleyball, and it's made of rattan. Um, and you, you, that's what it is. You, 
have to kick it. And, you know, you see these guys jump up in the air and basically do a bicycle kick to slam it over the net. And it's amazing to watch because somehow or another on the other side, they actually catch it and with yeah. their feet and save it. Uh, you know, it, it'll never make the Olympics probably because uh, it's only played in a few countries uh, really to any degree. Uh, it's been in the Asian games, uh, but a lot of people have criticized the Olympic program saying that it's too Eurocentric or maybe North American centric too, because almost all the sports tend to be either European or North American sports, except for the, some of the martial arts now, judo and taekwondo and, and karate is coming in. But uh, it'd be great to have Sepik Tekra to get a uh, more of a indigenous sport to Southeast Asia in there. It's a tr- Go look at a video of it, Ruth. You'll love it. Oh, I, I will. Definitely one which I think people would get on board with in terms of spectating. I think it's a very easy sport to just like go into an arena and watch that for two or three hours. I mean, you can't be disappointed. Yeah, it's it's just incredible to watch, even though nobody's heard of it. They have now. All of our listeners have. <laughs> Um, okay, but like no, we 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 do try and you know we're, when we've finished all of these and we approach the IOC with our new schedule, we'll have to have um, a few rules and regulations. Would we play this on sand or would we? Would it be on a hard course? Well, it's played on a hard court, as far as I know. But the the um, currently the trend is to move a lot of these sports to the beach. You know, not only beach volleyball. Um, which Ian Buchanan, the great British Olympic historian that I wrote several books with, uh, Ian had the great line on beach volleyball. He says, it's really nothing but Baywatch with a medal ceremony. (laughs) They've moved not only beach volleyball, but handball is played. There's beach Mm -hmm. handball. Um, I think football, uh, it might be futsal in this case, that's it's played on the beach as well. And there's been some call to, uh, put beach handball in the games they're pushing really hard well at least the international handball federation have been pushing really hard to try and get it into paris which i think is a bit too early and i think they're the only kind of concession the ioc would make is if they took away athlete quota from the the real handball from indoor handball and given it to uh, beach handball which i think nobody would accept in the end but I, I can say I'm a big beach handball fan. I, I've played it pretty much every summer for the last five years, and it is a great sport uh, and a lot more dynamic than than volleyball. Chris, you're a handball player, and I, I do not know that much about the game. How many players on the team in beach handball? Uh, beach handball, it's four on the court at any one time, and they're considering on ha- having a squad of eight players because there's a lot of rotation uh, between the players who play in attack and defense because as you can imagine running up and down even even a 20 meter beach court it can be quite exhausting so a lot of players come out and come in a bit like american football with offense and defense but it happens continuously there's no stopping actually that's almost more like ice hockey where they uh, yes yes uh, they jump absolutely. in and off the lines but and you probably you certainly know this chris but a lot of olympic uh aficionados don't realize handball came in the Olympics in 1972 in its current format. But in 1936, handball was in the Olympics as well in Berlin, except that it was called field handball. It was played on basically outdoors on a football uh, size field, soccer size field with 11 on a team instead of seven like they have now. In those 1936 games, the uh, it was incredibly 
incredibly popular, of course, because it is uh, in Germany. Uh, while the Germans like to think they created the sport, everyone else believes uh, it was created in Denmark. But uh, the Germans loved it, and I think it was a, a packed out stadium for the uh, the matches as well. One of you know the group I work with doing Olympic history and statistics. There's several Germans in there, and in Rio, I had lunch with one of them. And I was just asking about German sports, you know, who were the biggest uh, German sporting heroes and what are the most popular sports? I said, I know football is the most popular sport. What's second? He said it's handball in uh, in Germany. This is kind of off the topic of this. You guys will not know this name, but there's an American sports writer named Bob Ryan. Uh, You can look him up. Uh, Big name sports writer who wrote for many years for the Boston Globe. And his his beat was writing about basketball, pro basketball for the Boston Celtics. And you know, some people say he's the best known, you know, basketball sports writer in the U.S. And I remember talking to Bob uh, in London and he'd been to handball and he says it's an he thinks it's an incredible sport. He says he, he can't believe it's not popular in the U.S. He wishes it was. But uh, mm. he, he, and he says we should be good at it, too. He says we could just take our rejects from the basketball team. <laughs> Bill, uh, we could talk for about seven hours about this topic. Uh, it, it, it came up very recently with, um, what's his name? Oh, uh, former NFL player, Jay Cutler. He he claimed on a, a podcast in the States, a very popular one, that uh, he, could, he and a bunch of other athletes could just pick it up and uh, they could win gold in handball in six months. And it got a lot of backlash. Uh, it got the... Got the handball world united. Uh, it got my podcast on handball featured on ESPN as well because we we made fun of him uh, about it. So yeah, didn't uh, didn't Team GB try that as well uh, for twenty twelve? Didn't they? Didn't they try and uh, take all as you say the rejects from rugby, uh, basketball, <laughs> and how does that work? They finished last. Yeah, Chris, but in seventy six when. Um... The U.S. had a team in, in handball, which we don't usually anymore because we don't qualify. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of the players on the U.S. team um, actually later played in the NFL. Wow. There you go. Well, let's just say the British experiment was going so poorly that eight months before the Olympics, they uh, asked me to join on a training camp because I was born in London. Uh, so this is <laughs> this is how poorly that experiment went. But, uh, well, we'll see with America in L.A. because they have an automatic berth in 2028 for the Olympics and they're trying to develop uh, teams for, uh, for 2028 at the moment. So I reckon it'll be more a case of dual nationality players, so players from Scandinavia and Germany with uh, American heritage, rather than getting the NFL and NBA's uh, rejects. But uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll catch up on that another time. But I, I fear we'll be uh, boring a lot of people discussing the, uh, trans- or the talent transfer potential between sports. Now, there was no golf in 20, uh, 1920. Um, but if you could go back and win a medal, what would you have liked to have won a medal in, in the 1920 games? Um, well, my favorite sport uh, to watch is tennis. Uh, my favorite sport to do other than golf is cycling. So probably cycling, uh, especially track cycling. I love that. But, you know, uh, yeah, golf was not in the 1920 Olympics, but it was on the schedule. It was on the program to be held uh, for the only time other than uh, 
the times were when it was, well, it was held in 1900 and 1904, and then it was on the schedule in 1908 and 1920 again, um, but they didn't get enough entries to hold the sport in 1920, so they decided not to. Plus, I have a feeling uh, half of the golf courses had probably been bombed during the World War. So, Yeah, more bunker than... <laughs> Bill, where can our listeners follow you and, and see your great work these days? Well, the biggest thing to look at, I work with a group of Olympic historians and statisticians. We call ourselves statistorians. And uh, our site is www.olympedia.org. Um, and they should go go there. It's, it's actually uh, the most complete uh, Olympic site for results and history and bios and everything on all the Olympic athletes. Uh, the site has actually been bought by the IOC and it's going to become the official Olympic site. Uh, wow. Eventually they're, they're kind of incorporating into their, into a big digital project they have going, but that's our site. Okay. Bill, that was amazing. Thank you so much. That was uh, a real pleasure. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. You guys are, uh, it's a good show. You guys are fun uh, the way you do it. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, for those listening, I hope you enjoyed it and we'll be back in a couple of weeks time with 1924 as we go back to Paris after they did such an amazing job in 1900. They could only go back and, and do it again. So let's see if there are any live pigeons to shoot. 